So he said it before, when life gives you lemons, make? What do you do with a lemon experience so sour that there may not be enough sweetener on the planet to make it better, to make it tasty, as it were? What do you do then? What do you do when there are no good reasons in your mind, no answers to your suffering? What do you do when there's no good why behind the what of what you're facing? I think of things like death, loss of a loved one, loss of health, loss of, 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 of wealth and career and and, you, and as far as you knew, you were trying to walk right with God. It's not because of choices you made. It's just because, and you don't know why. I hope in your life that's very few and far between of what you face. But inevitably, hardship comes to all of us. Today, I want to talk to you about the lemons of loss. The lemons of loss. You know, in the first week, in the lemonade series, we looked at just, if you're going to make lemonade out of lemons, it starts with just a decision to make lemonade. Like your first step is just, I'm going to decide to do something different with it. Last week, then Pastor Vern looked at what happens when you face betrayal and relationship brokenness and and the opportunity for offense will come your way. What do you do then? Well, you have to make a decision to forgive. Well, the same is true as you face loss. We have to make a decision. And I want to tell you a story about a guy named Job in the Bible. The story of Job, like nobody likes to read that book. I mean, I hate reading that book. Somebody said, Job's my favorite book. You are a sicko. <laughs> it looks like Job, for those who are new to the Bible, but it, I mean, it's actually pronounced Job. In fact, I, I, my, one of my first mentors, when I would talk to him, I'm reading the Bible, and I'm reading this crazy book called The Book of Jobs. And he, and he was always telling me I needed to get a job, you know? But he said, no, that's not what that book's about. And then I read it, and I was like, yeah, no, that's not what that book's about. But it's one of the oldest books in the Bible. What we learn is that the devil was in the details from the very beginning. And there's a conversation with, this, with God and, and Satan about this man named Job. And it's like God starts the conversation. Satan comes, and he says, Satan, where have you been going? I've been going to and fro throughout the earth, you know, basically seeking whom he could devour. God says, well, have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him in all the earth, righteous and blameless in all his ways? Satan's like, oh, it's because you've blessed him. If you would just, if you would take all his stuff from him, you take his family, he'll curse you to your face. God says, I'll tell you what, I'll take you up on that challenge. Go ahead. Take whatever he's got, but you can't touch his health. And so in one day, Job loses all his children, he loses all his possessions, and he has a, he has a, a phenomenal response. He tusted, he suffers great loss. Then he loses, uh, uh, then later the devil ups the attack. After Job passes that one, it says, if you touch his health, skin for skin, you touch his health, he'll curse you to your face. God says, go for it, just don't take his life. And so Job suffers an incredible disease that, that runs on throughout his body. And, and from when the devil ups the assault and attacks his health, from God's perspective, he's allowing Job to be tested because he's confident that Job will be faithful to him no matter what comes his way. 
But from Job's perspective, he's trying to remain faithful to God while wondering about God's nature and character. Like, who are you? What are you doing to me? Because he knows he's a good man. He's not disagreeing with God. He is a righteous man. After his health is for, excuse me, after he loses his children and all his stuff, here's his response, Job 13, verse 15. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Even so, I'll defend my own ways before him. I left you in the first message of the series. I said, at the very end, you got a foundational decision you need to make. You need to trust God with everything. That's exactly what Job's doing here. But then there's this other part of him like, but wait a second, I'm gonna trust him. This doesn't seem in, in alignment with what I know him to be. I believe he's good, so I'm trying to understand why good things are happening to a, or bad things are happening to a good person. We've all been there. And so I'm gonna trust him, but I'm gonna defend myself, my ways before him because I know I'm living right. See, it's one thing to get offended at people. It's a whole other thing to get offended at God. That's where Job's at right here. He's still trusting him, so technically he's not sinning, but he's definitely offended. Job 30, after his, after his health gets impacted for quite a while, he says this in verse 20. I cry to you, O God, but you don't answer. I stand before you, but you don't even look. You become cruel toward me. You use your power to persecute me. You throw me into the whirlwind and destroy me in the storm, and I know you're sending me to my death, the destination of all who live. Have you ever felt like Job? Did here? Or you know someone who did, who's felt like that? And you're battling with trusting God through your most painful moments in life because when you call for help, it feels like God's not there. I want you to know something. Job gets you. You know, Job's story has a powerful shift. Later in the story, after Job complains against God over and over again, I'm righteous. Uh, you know, boy, I, I would just love to meet with God face to face and have this conversation. Dumbest thing any human ever said. Job, but it has a powerful shift because God appears to Job in a whirlwind and he has this discussion with him about perspective. He doesn't have a discussion with him about why or bad things happening to good people. Rather, he has a perspective or has a conversation about perspective when bad things are happening to good people. And here's why. Because when we're suffering, we have a tendency to judge all of life, right and wrong, from the angle of our small human experience. Then we judge God for not doing what we think he should do. It's like if God, position of God was up for an election, we would run saying, I'm running for that position because... I think I can do a better job than you at being God, God. Because pain is pain. So God, because he loves Job, shows up, and instead of defending himself against all of Job's accusations, he just simply shows Job how small and limited his perspective is. Through that encounter, because Job says, oh, wow, I just saw God. Yeah, that was dumb. I, I, yeah, I'm not calling God out ever again. He's, he's, he actually took on sackcloth and ashes. It was a way of humbling yourself. He had said, I abhor myself. I seen the Lord, and I abhor myself in sackcloth and ashes. I'm a man who, who as God put it in there, who is this who darkens 
counsel without understanding. He's saying, who is this who talks about like, you know, like he knows what he's talking about, but has no clue. That's what God, God gets really sarcastic when you jump through that process. God didn't answer the accusation. God met with him though. God may not answer all your questions, but he'll meet with you in the midst of those. And Job discovered that God's all-knowing, all-powerful, and ever-present in all of our stuff. And he humbled himself and declared God is right even when he didn't get it. And in the end, God restored double all that was taken from Job. In the, in the book of James, James, the brother of, the biological brother of Jesus, would have been born to Joseph and Mary, also said, hey, well, he was half-brother of Jesus because God was Jesus' father. But anyway, he, uh, he, he said, Look at the life of Job. Consider his perseverance and the faithfulness of God in it to understand God's intended outcome for when you're facing similar things. I want to tell you a story about a couple who's a friend of several of us from Lifeway Church uh, who are a part of Ephrata Community Church, the congregation that, that sent us out. In December 6, 2011, on a rainy and wintry day, three police cars show up at Mark and Marilyn Martin's home. Could you imagine what that'd feel like? Why are you here? What's going on? The officers knock at the door. They answer the door. They see these cars out there. The lights are going. The officers say, can we, uh, can, can we go somewhere private to talk? Someplace, you know, to sit down? They said, sure. They're, they're mystified by this, and they bring them in and sit them down. He says, are you the parents of Jordan and Kyle Martin? Mark says, yes. We're sorry, but we regret to inform you that your sons were both in a traffic accident today, and both of them died. Mark says, both of them? Never said, I'm sorry, yes. Marilyn, his wife, says, oh, what about JoLynn? She, she, they were going to pick their sister up, and, and, and they had to pick her up from a, an event, and she has blonde hair, and she, she, the officers cut her off. There was a young lady also, and she also died. How would you feel in that moment? You feel, you feel bad. Let's just say it. You don't get more sour than that. When you think of making lemonade, when you think of sour circumstances, it doesn't get worse than that. I have five children. I could not imagine losing three at once. One. I could imagine losing one. Mark has this island out in front of his house. He goes out in that island after the police officers leave. He's there praying. He's going, God, this isn't right. This isn't right. And all of a sudden, he said, it was like this, this flood of memories came back in the last seven years. He said, I remembered asking God, God, more of you and less of me, whatever it takes for more of you and less of me. And in that moment, he had a revelation. It wasn't God spoke it to him. He just had this inner knowing, God, you're good. And he said it. He declared it out loud, God, you're good. And it just helped somehow. Your kingdom purpose, my children being out of their body. Because they're not dead. I just have to pause to see them again. They're with you. They're in a better place than I could ever be. If this is somehow better, then I trust you in it, even when I don't understand it. And when the enemy at that moment would come to accuse God to Mark, Mark declared out loud, God, you are good. Remember what Satan's comment to Job was, yeah, you... you you touch his stuff and he'll curse you to your face. That's what he was trying to get Mark to do. Yeah. Mark said when he declared God is good, he felt this 
He said a supernatural physical presence. He felt something like warm heat come over him, like oil. And he said it, it immediately was left with this profound peace. I went to the memorial service for these kids. I walked in. I, could, I started crying as soon as I saw all three caskets. I was done. Three caskets of beautiful young children, in my opinion, because I'm old. <laughs> and I began to cry. And Mark came up to me, peace in his face, and gave me a hug. And I'm like, who the heck are you? You're psychotic. This is going to hit you at some moment. And even in myself, I knew, no, I can see in his eyes. This isn't a guy who's in denial. This is a guy who's fully embraced suffering and trusted God in it. That's who this is and was. I'm telling you this tragic story, okay? I mean, I recognize. I got you right here. You're paying attention, okay? I can see it in your eyes. And what comes to our mind is most of us have never had a tragic experience to that degree. Like, I've never had a bad day is what I'm thinking, you know? But that's really not true, and here's why. Because pain can't be compared to other pain. Pain is pain. Your pain is different than my pain, but it hurts, right? Here's my point. And the reason I brought up the tragic story is I believe the principles that took Mark and Marilyn Martin through their most painful moment in their life can take you through it also. There's principles here. There's grace to be found here. There's help from God to be found in this. It's the same stuff, that, that it's the same uh, principles and power that carried Paul the apostle through his. The apostle Paul said of himself after being, after being uh, you know, we talked about it before, he, he was uh, persecuted the church. And he went from persecuting the church to becoming a Christian and being a follower, a devoted follower of Jesus. And as he went from his lofty status of being a Pharisee, and Pharisees were wealthy, he went from his wealthy status as a Pharisee to becoming the, the off-scouring of the earth, as he put it. Persecuted. The people tried to kill him. Everywhere he went, he got beaten with rods so many times, he probably had permanent scars all over his body. It may be just the pain of walking, having walked through marketplaces and you're walking through and people are like, oh, hey, Mr. Pharisee, you're so awesome. And like you're, you're like a, a, a hero and an icon in the culture. And now they see you and they go, ooh, you're one of those Christians. This is what he said in Philippians 3.8. I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Romans 8.18, he says at a different time, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth Comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And I guess I got the, que the question that comes to my mind is, how does someone get to the place where they truly look at these kind of hardships through that lens? And he gives us, Paul gives us a hint in his letter to the church at Rome. He writes this in Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, joy and peace come from believing because believing is a perspective. And when you lose your faith, when you lose your trust, your, your perspective is impacted by that and you lose your joy and peace, a peace that was so profound on Mark Martin that I couldn't deny it was there. So the question is, what are you placing your hope in? Because what you're placing your hope in and what you're believing in is having a direct impact on your perspective. Paul the Apostle, my friends Mark and Marilyn, and even Job after his encounter with God, had a revelation of God that helped them make lemonade out of the sourest 
of lemons. But notice what I said there. They had a revelation, not answers. They had a revelation of who God is in their circumstance, not answers to the why behind the what. If we could keep asking the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Or we could come to know God in the middle of it. Uh, and that knowledge ultimately uh, became knowledge of who God is in it. And that knowledge gave them assurance in their pain. So I'm convinced of something today. I'm convinced you don't need answers in what you're facing. I'm convinced you need assurance. And I want to give you three assurances, things that God wants you to know and trust when you're facing your worst day. In fact, I wish, I wish you would write these down. In fact, I wish when you are facing them, you would declare them out loud. When you're in your car and you're driving, you would declare these out loud. When the enemy comes in to attack you, just like Mark said, God, you're good, that you would, you would do the same thing. You're good. Here's why you're good, God. And you would declare them. Let's, let's learn a few of these here today. Let's learn some of the reasons that God is still good when life is bad. One, you could declare this. I know that God loves me and wants the best for me. I know that God loves me and wants the best for me. You know, we, we would often talk about God's love, God is love and all that. And we, but really, uh, believing in God's love is often connected to what we believe is best for our lives. You, did you follow that? If what we believe is best is happening, then we have a tendency to believe that God is loving us at the same time. So what's best mean? Best means most excellent, effective, or desirable. But even that needs a context, right? Hugh Hefner, the founder of Playboy, thought that pornography and building his empire financially lived a, a wild, lascivious life before he uh, died basically opened the doorway of pornography uh, to the world. And some might look at him and think, man, that guy was living his best life. It's one of these things that young adults always say to me. Like Joanna will say, you're living your best life. I'm like, I don't know what that means. Because it's got to be connected to something. Hugh Hefner thought he was living his best life. And if this life is all there is, then he, he would have been right. But here's what I believe. I believe this, this life is simply like an 80-ish year internship leading to heaven where our faithfulness to God is evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ. And if we're right, and I obviously believe that we are, I wouldn't be standing here today, and I believe Hugh Hefner is not living his best life. In fact, I think he's very concerned right now. I want to contrast a different idea of the best life. I just read this article by FAI, a missions organization. FAI it made a report on the Iranian church as one of the fastest growing underground churches in the world. They have no buildings. They have no capital campaign programs. It's mostly led by women. And, they, and, they, and they've seen so many converts and so many coming to faith in Christ. They put themselves at risk as they walk up to prostitutes. And people like that, they begin to preach the gospel to them as they reach the poor and as they begin to minister to them. And the reason I'm not, I can't tell you their whole story. It's an amazing story, but I want to highlight something that's very important out of it. In this video, it's a, it's a, it's a documentary called Sheep Among Wolves. You can find it online for free, Sheep Among Wolves. The film cites one Iranian couple that had, came out of that that had the opportunity to move to the USA. After living in America for a matter of months, the wife decided she wanted to do back to Iran, telling her surprised husband... 
There is a satanic lullaby here in the United States. All the Christians are sleepy, and I'm feeling sleepy. This is a lady who endured persecution and suffering and hardship. One leader with the FIA notes the alarming nature of her conclusion. That story was disturbing because that woman was discerning a threat to her faith that was greater than the kind of persecution that happens in Iran. She saw the spiritual sleepiness as a greater threat to her faith than persecution, which means, in her mind, her best life was back in Iran facing persecution and suffering and loss because she decided that gaining Christ was greater than gaining the American dream, and she had her chance at it. Now, I don't want to draw her conclusions. I think... What that tells me is it takes more grace to live for Christ in affluence than it takes to die for him in hardship. But I don't get the choice. I can't just move to Iran whenever I feel like it. Are you following me? And you can't either. So we have to choose to decide what is what makes our best life our best life because it's affecting the way you think about God's love for you. Look at what Paul the Apostle says in Romans 8.35. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity? Are you losing your best life at that moment? Or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake, we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Even though it looks like we're losing, we're winning that was his perspective, and God loves us in the middle of it. How could he say that? For the Christian, and he was definitely one of those, our hope is ultimately eternal. We have an eternal hope, not the temporary hope of this world, not the temporary hope of this present life. At some point, someone's going to die in your life if they haven't already. That loss, if you love them, is painful. As a pastor, I've had to do multiple memorial services, multiple funerals in my time. And I want to tell you, there is a great distinction between doing the memorial service for someone who lived for Jesus Christ and other people who live for Jesus Christ coming to celebrate that person's life and their home going to Jesus versus the, the, the grief that the world faces when that person's life is over. Because in their mind, they have no hope. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, the apostle gives us this encouragement by the Holy Spirit. He says, and now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died. Here's why. Here's why. So you will not grieve like people who have no hope. Here's what he's not saying. He's not saying don't grieve. Just grieve with hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, because he is returning, God will bring back with him believers who have died. We would tell you this directly from the Lord. He couldn't get stronger than that in his statement. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who've died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. That is going to be awesome. You think a Super Bowl is good. Check this out. 
For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet call of God. First the believers who would die will rise from their graves. That's, you know, what's that look like? Little light shooting up out of the ground? I don't even know. Fireworks going off. That together with them, we who are still alive and remain on earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. You want to not encourage somebody who's suffering loss? I mean, don't do it immediately, but let, let, give them time to grief. But this is what he says to do. See, the second coming of Christ is our blessed hope where he will heal all our pain. And people who don't have that hope uh, maintain that pain. When I was a youth pastor, I had a young man named Javier. Javier uh, was a, a, he actually, on the night that he was, should have been at youth group, he hung out with some friends who weren't living so well. They got in a car accident and Javier died. All those friends came to the memorial service. I was officiating the memorial service. I have never felt such palpable grief in my life. So there's grief of loss. And then there's grief of loss with hope that what is lost will be restored. Lydia's dad also died. I was a part of that memorial service as well. Art Butterfield lived his life for Jesus Christ. He had some of the craziest stories and testimonies of meeting people and preaching Jesus and seeing them filled with the Holy Spirit and delivering, you know, God using him to deliver prophetic messages and, and just a life of impact. And we would meet people and they would say, man, Lydia, your dad did this. Or Lydia, your dad did this. Oh, his impact on me was like this. And we would hear that. And there was this moment where we had this video that Devin, Lydia's brother Devin made. And it was just like a little montage because we didn't know what we were doing back then. We stayed up all night the night before the memorial service, putting together a little iMovie video, you know, taking pictures and making it look cool. And and uh, even showed a funny scene in there where, where uh, this other guy was competing for uh, Anita's attention and then has a picture of Art with his golf gear and his hat on back in the old days, you know, with his club. His, you know, I don't know what it was, maybe 1965 or something. He's standing there and, and it gets to this moment and, you know, but there could be only one. Ba -ba 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 -ba. You know, and it's funny and people were laughing at that. But by the time we get to the end of the video about Art's life, the whole room stood up on their feet, was clapping, going, woo! How does that happen in a moment of intense grief? It happened because we were celebrating a life well-lived. And we had hope. We had hope. I want you to know something. God loves you, but that love has a context. And he wants what's best for you, and best has a context. And the context is what ultimately matters is what's best for your life, not what matters in a moment. Does that make sense? The second affirmation, the second thing you can declare is I know that God has a plan for me and will bring me through. I know God has a plan for me and will bring me through. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. You know, people quote this and then all my theologians in the room go, that was a prophecy to Israel. That was exclusively for Israel, blah, 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 hey, blah, blah, back at you here for a second. I consider myself a very astute student of the Word of God. Anybody who's ever had to, you know, sword fight with me in a debate understands that I actually know the Scriptures, that we're not just some happy, clappy church, but that we believe that we are, need to be rooted and established in Christ and rooted and established in His Word. When God says, Israel, I will give you, I, I don't want to harm you, I want to give you a hope and a future, He's not revealing a prophecy to Israel, He's more revealing His nature in the way He is in His character. That when you are facing stuff, I'm for you. Look at what Paul the Apostle says in 2 Timothy 4.18. 
as if he's remembering this verse. He's suffering, and he talks about his sufferings, and he gets here in this letter to Timothy. And by the time he writes this, he knows he's about to die. And he says this, yes, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil attack and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. All glory to God forever and ever, amen. Now listen, he knew he was, he already, he had already written to Timothy in this letter. He says, uh, I'm already about to be poured out as a drink offering. Like, he knew he was gonna get executed. He was, Paul was beheaded. Was Paul wrong? Did God deliver him from every evil attack? and bring him into his heavenly kingdom? I think so, because we have a tendency to think delivering me from every evil attack means I shouldn't go through it. Paul says, no, I'm gonna go through it, and I'm gonna get through it, because God has a plan for me, and he'll bring me through. Isaiah 43, verse two through three, he says, when you go through the deep waters, I'll be with you. When you go through the rivers of difficulty, you'll not drown, but you will go through them. He didn't say you're not gonna go through it, you're gonna go through it. But you're not going to drown. You're not going to be burned. I'm going to get you through it. And when you walk through the fire of oppression, you'll not be burned up. The flames will not consume you. I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Let me say it this way. You ready? When I know God is with me, I can face what is against me. When I know God is with me, I can face what is against me. The third thing that you can declare, the final thing is this. I know that my struggles have a purpose and my pain has an end. I actually struggle with this thought a little bit. I believe it, but like you, I'm human. And sometimes there are random bad things, seemingly random bad things in life that I go, that has no purpose. That was just evil. When we say God has a purpose for your stuff, for your pain, okay? I know that my struggles have a purpose. We aren't saying that God caused the struggle. We're saying that God will redeem the struggle. We are not saying God caused the struggle. We're saying God will redeem it. And ultimately, your pain has an end. Aaron said so aptly this morning, you know, in life where our mission is to know Christ, God wants you to know him. But when does he want you to know him and where does he want you to know him? We believe God wants you to discover your purpose. When does he want you to discover your purpose? Where? We believe God wants you to impact lives. When? Where? Listen, you ready? At all times, everywhere, in all things. He wants you to know him. He wants you to discover the purpose of that moment. And then in that moment, he wants you to impact lives. Think about this for a minute. If Paul the Apostle, well, they wanted to cut his head off at one point. He writes in the book of Philippians. He's like, "Mm, I don't know if I want to go be with Christ because that's better, far better, he says. Or if I stay here to be a beneficial to you, "Mm, I'm hard-pressed between which I would choose. I'm struggling. It's as if the Romans came up to him and said, off with your head. He said, thank you so much. I was having such a hard time figuring out which way I wanted to go here, and you solved that for me. What was he saying? If, if I live on, I'm going to change the world, right? If I die, I get to be with Christ. I win no matter what. I cannot lose. Come on. Come on. That's beautiful because that gives me hope no matter what I'm facing. Well, he could die doing this. Woohoo! <laughs> Rich Mullins, a Christian singer, was reputed for saying things like this all the time. He started a concert. He was down in, I think it was somewhere, it might have been in uh, 
uh, Houston, Texas area or whatever, but he was in an arena doing a concert. He stood up. Well, he said, you guys heard the tornadoes coming this way. He said, ah, we're not working. We're still going to have the concert. And he's like, you know, maybe we all get to go be with Jesus tonight. Let's go. You know, and he's just like, <laughs> people say that's the way Rich Mullins lived. And he died. He, he died a kind of what seemed like a tragic death. Not to him. It was just his home going. It was just the means that God used to get him there. Lydia's mom, Anita, passed away about just a little over a year ago. Now, Anita was a lady who was kind. Some of you were in the church when she was here. She was the lady that would always wear the big black dark glasses and greet you at the door, you know? She looked like, like, like I mean, they're big glasses, the big black kind, you know, that are supposed to block light. And I tried to, Mom, I can get you something a little bit smaller, a little more, you know, stylish. No, no, I like these, you know, they're just big as... And Anita would greet everybody. She loved everybody. Anita was the most generous human being. Now, generosity not defined by money, but I'll tell you stories about that when we get in our generosity series because she would give money. Anita was generous because you came to her house. The first thing she's going to do is close up those doors on the TV. You became the most important person. If she only had crackers and butter and tea in her house, that's what she would serve you. But you were going to be served. Anita loved people, and she was a woman who'd been through the, uh, through the 70s, of the Jesus movement. They saw healings and deliverances and all kinds of crazy stuff. They could tell you stories as far as the day is long. Anita had seen healing, so she comes down with this terminal cancer, and she's believing God. I'm believing God's going to heal me. I'm and she went through this moment. There was a moment where after she realized, okay, God's not going to heal me, and this is really important because she came to the place where she realized her struggle has a purpose and her pain has an end. And when she was over here at Anvil at this, uh, this, this home that we had her in, all the residents and all the staff said, this is the nicest lady we have ever taken care of. She's in pain and yet she's kind. She's asking how our day is going. How can she pray for us? She's asking, like she just said, hey, I'm going to discover the purpose. I'm going to meet with Christ in my pain. I'm going to discover my purpose in my pain. I'm going to preach the gospel of Jesus while in my pain. Most people got to experience Jesus through her. While I was preparing for this message, I happened to bump across Facebook on this lady named Havilah, uh, if I say her name right, uh, it's Cunnington from Bethel Church. She had a, a powerful statement. She says this, I want to read it to you. She was talking about facing her pain. She was listening to a podcast and she heard this person say this and she's got some great conclusions here and I want you to hear it, hear it closely. Life is about 50% good and 50% bad. I don't know if that percentage is right, but we know we have a percentage that's good and a percentage that's bad. We all experience good and bad in our lives. The trouble comes when we believe the bad part isn't supposed to be there. We will spend all of our energy trying to rid ourselves of the bad, believing that we are missing something in our lives because of the hard stuff. Once we embrace that the hard stuff is there, we stop using all our energy to rid ourselves of it. Did you hear that? And I think we as Christian believers are the worst at this part. We've been taught that God is coming to take all the bad out of our lives and bad theology teaches us that our bad is directly linked to our belief systems or worse, our hearts. Nope, not true, not biblical. The hard things in life prove our humanity, not our faith. Our faith is what keeps us safe in a world that's trying to blame, shame, and judge. Our faith says, I'm not alone in this. I have a God who's fighting for me, and he'll redeem this moment. Right the wrongs. If not here on earth, heaven will tell the truth. 
And this is what she concludes, and I want you to hear this. So if you're facing hard stuff today, like the rest of us, some of you need to know that the rest of us are experiencing hard things too. Take a deep breath and say, this is the other 50% of life. I'm not doing anything wrong. It's not my fault. It's just life. What if you did do stuff wrong? What if sin has opened that up? What if your marriage is in trouble because you had an affair or, or other things like that? What if your finances are in trouble because you mismanaged them and all that stuff? There's grace for you. That Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth to die on a cross for all those mistakes, to pay what we call sin. Sin means you've missed the mark for what God created you for. And you can sin in your finances, sin in your relationships, sin in your relationship with God. You can miss the mark on your purpose for why he made you. And Jesus died to pay for those so you wouldn't have to. Fanny Crosby, famous hymn writer, lived 95, to be 95 years old, wrote over 8,000 hymns. Just a few weeks into her life, that's, I think it was like six weeks into her life, she had an eye issue that a doctor tried to solve with some kind of mustard poultice and it ended up blinding her. So for most of her 95 years, she was blind, and yet she found a reason to praise God. And I want to, I told you today, you don't need answers, you need assurance. I want to hear what she said about assurance. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story. This is my song praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Let me read you the other two verses she has. Perfect submission, perfect delight, visions of rapture now burst on my sight. What do you think a blind woman's thinking about? I'm going to get to see for the first time. Imagine your first sight being God. Come on, man, your first sight being heaven. Well, she had a bad life. Did she? Or does God say, I'm just going to hold the best. I'm going to blow your mind with heaven. I'm just going to, nah, you don't need to see this lowly. You don't want to see half the junk. You don't need to see Netflix. Okay, Fanny, I'm saving you from that. Angels descending, bring from above, echoes of mercy, whispers of love. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed, watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness, lost in his love. This is my story. This is my song. And God wants it to be your story, and he wants it to be your song. Would you stand to your feet? She talks about perfect submission. We call that surrender. Two weeks ago when I was sharing with you, I said, surrender is not embracing everything that comes to your life is from God. I don't believe that. I don't believe everything that comes to your life is from God. I believe the devil's out there in the details. I believe that God allows those things though. And he'll use those things. So surrender is not embracing everything in your life is from God. Rather, surrender is embracing God in everything that comes. Quit blaming God for your pain and run to him in it. Because he loves you. 
The book of Revelation tells us whatever you're facing in pain and suffering, he promises there's a day when he will wipe every tear from our eyes. I learned, I was watching a Netflix documentary on the brain, on the mind, and it was talking about uh, this portion of your brain that I can't remember the name of. I learned so many different portions of the brain. I'm lost on it, like the something like that, and then something else. We learned about memory. Well, you have different forms of memories, like historic memory, what we call uh, like episodic memory episodes in your life. Well, there was a man they did surgery on back, I want to say it was roughly the 70s or something. He had a tumor they had to get. When they got the tumor out, they actually, they must have done something to this particular portion of his brain, and it completely wiped out his episodic memories. He could remember all kinds of details, World War II history, history stuff. He could remember um, like facts and figures, but he couldn't remember anything personal about his life, including his own house. Now, as bad as that sounds, I believe God's the perfect master healer, the perfect surgeon. The cancer of our life is sin and the pain caused by it. And I believe he can reach into that place and touch that spot in you. When you are born again, you won't have it happen on this life. You're going to remember, but there's a day you're going to stand before him when he's going to put his, his healing hand into your brain and he's going to cause all those things that cause you pain to go away. When it says he's going to wipe away every tear from their eye, he's not pulling out tissues, people. He's, the Bible says he's going to cause all their memory to be no more. I love following Jesus because I got bad stuff in my life that I don't want to remember. There's a day I won't. I won't remember getting sexually abused at four years old. I won't remember that. For those of you who've suffered similar things, you won't either if you surrender your life to Jesus. Quit blaming him for it. Surrender to him and get it wiped out. I won't remember all the things that I've done wrong to others that I've repented of that caused me grief and guilt and shame and the hurt that I've caused other people. That repentance will be good. Jesus Christ's blood will pay for it. And on that day, I'll remember it no more and neither will he. That's what the Bible tells us. That's what the gift of God and eternal life and salvation is for you when you surrender to him. And some of you today, you need to do that. You need to either return to the Lord knowing he'll abundantly pardon or you need, to, you need to just come for the first time. And I want to give you the opportunity. Here's what you need to believe. The gospel of Jesus is simple. It's that Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth to die on the cross for our sins that those surrendering to that reality and believing in him in his death and his resurrection will not perish but have eternal life. All you have to do is believe. All you have to do is say yes to Jesus leading your life and that takes care of it. Then you got to begin to follow. Of course, that's a whole other journey. But it starts with a covenant. It starts with making a covenant with Jesus. Just like I made a covenant with my wife. I stood at an altar and said, I do. I didn't know what was going to come. She didn't know what was going to come. And we've walked that covenant out for 26 years. Similar, I said yes to Jesus. I didn't know what was going to come. And we've been walking it out since I've known him. He's never done me any harm. He'll never do you any harm. This is my story. This is my song. How about you get your own story? Would you bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment? If you're here today and you're saying, man, Pastor Jimmy, I hear you talking today and I've not said yes to Jesus like this. I, I, I have not submitted. I've got things in my life that have held me back. I want you to know that Jesus wants to forgive you of those. He's paid for them. I've got pain and suffering and hurt. He wants to ultimately wipe it away. There will be a day when all pain is gone. For right now, it's a tool to mature us. You're saying, I'm willing to sign up on that journey. I want to know the revelation that the Apostle Paul that made him say, 
that all his past stuff is rubbish to Christ's gain. I want to know what Mark and Marilyn Martin knew to be able to say, my three children are better with you. I trust you in it. You're still good. I want to know that revelation. If that's you today and you want to surrender your life to Jesus Christ that way, would you raise your hand high and let me pray for you right now? I see you. Awesome. Would you join me in prayer, prayer together? And, and, and I've got a prayer for us as well who know Jesus already. Let's do this. Say, God, I want to know you. I want to know you in the power of your resurrection. And I want to know you in the fellowship of your suffering. That I may somehow obtain the resurrection from the dead. That I may know Christ forever. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I ask you to forgive me for blaming you in any way. And I ask you to increase trust in my life that I can walk through every circumstance knowing that you are good, knowing that you love me, that you want what's best for me, knowing that you have a plan for me and that you'll bring me through and knowing that my struggle has a purpose and my pain has an end. Fill me with the Holy Spirit that I can walk wholeheartedly with you today. I receive Jesus as Lord and I choose to follow him in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's give God thanks for those who say yes to Jesus.